introduction to her, and she is everything that Nicodemus is not. She is female, obviously, of course. She's on the outside because, well, she's female, and she's a Samaritan. Uh, Nicodemus is not only a Jew, but a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the Jews. Uh, and so he has all of these, these accolades, all this respect, all this power and authority, and she has none of that. Um, she is as far on the outside as outside can be. Even the Samaritans disdain this woman. Uh, we know that because as she comes to the well, do you know what time she comes to the well? Look in, look in your Bible. She comes at noon. Um, I've never been to this part of the world, but at noon... It's hot. <laughs> it's hot in the desert. It's hot in Ohio at noon, right? And so she comes at noon. We're left to assume because every, everyone else has come as custom dictates in the mornings and in the evenings when it's cooler. Uh, she comes at noon, I'm assuming, so that she doesn't have to interact with all the people because the whispers uh, and the rumors um, that have been spread about her over the last several years... Um, She's trying to stay away from those, I would imagine. And that just makes, makes sense to me. And so this woman is on the outside of the outside group. The Samaritans are not looked upon kindly by the Jewish people, especially the Jewish aristocracy. Uh, the Jewish elite would have held them more than at arm's length. In fact, if you were to eat off the same plate as a Samaritan, you would be considered unclean. If you were to drink from the same bottle, the same cup as a Samaritan, you would be considered unclean. And so there is as much difference between these two people as there could possibly be between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. But both come to Jesus. Both are welcomed by him. He doesn't seem to care that Nicodemus is an elite, that he's a Pharisee, that he is steeped in Jewish law, that he's intelligent, he's devout, um, he prays three times a day, he teaches regularly. Jesus doesn't seem to care that this man is wealthy, that he's well-respected, that people would have moved aside for Nicodemus as he walks down the marketplace aisles. Uh, when, he come in, when he comes into a house, everyone else would have stepped aside or would have stood out of respect and he would have gotten the seat of honor. That's who Nicodemus is. Jesus doesn't seem to care, though, when he comes, when Nicodemus comes with what we're left to assume as with legitimate questions. What does Jesus do? He welcomes him in, right? He answers his questions. He deals with him in the hopes that Nicodemus has further questions, that he comes deeper with, with Jesus, that he has more, that he wants, that he wants more from Jesus than just answers. When the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 comes to Jesus with questions, questions that she didn't know she had, right? What is Jesus' response? Welcome in. I'm going to answer all of your questions. I'm going to treat you exactly the same way as I treated Nicodemus. Now, he would have been the only guy that would have happened to, that would have treated these two people the same way in their entire lives. If Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman had interacted with a million people in their day and age, Jesus would have been the only one who treated them exactly the same. Everyone else would have 
cowled to Nicodemus. Everyone else would have respected him and everyone else would have shunned and made fun of the Samaritan woman. That's not what Jesus does. He treats them exactly the same. They're both welcome in God's kingdom. And that's one of the beautiful things about John chapter 4 as we think about evangelism tonight. Everyone's welcome. It doesn't matter, <clears throat> it doesn't matter what, what they've done, who they've been, what type of life that they've lived. There's abundant grace for them, right? All you have to do is go back and look at Matthew chapter 1. Hold your finger in John 4 and flip over to Matthew chapter 1. This, this is my favorite picture, I think, of, of grace. And it's, it's hidden, I guess you could say, here in Matthew chapter 1. In the genealogy of Jesus. But if you look very quickly, uh, I just need you to notice this picture of grace. In verse, verse 3, he's, he's going through the Messiah. The Messiah that they've been waiting on for so long. He's going through his genealogy. And in verse 3 he says, And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Do you remember who Tamar is? Right? If you don't remember who Tamar is... Go back and read Tamar's story. She is an ancestor of Jesus. You skip down just a couple more verses in verse 5, and you find Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? By Rahab, right? She's even, by the world's standards, in a worse condition than Tamar would have been because that's her profession. Tamar just did it one time out of necessity's sake, but here Rahab has chosen this type of lifestyle, but Jesus has been born right into her family. It's amazing, right? And, and you go down just a couple more verses uh, in verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by, by who? He doesn't even name her. That's, that's how we know Matthew's drawing attention to these women. He doesn't even name her. He calls her the wife of Uriah. He's wanting you to go back and remember those stories. And you can, as you do that, think, why in the world is he pointing out these, these black sheep? These, these terrible stories in Jesus' lineage. Uh, if you were to ask me to, to point out all the things that I'm proud of in my lineage, it would not be people like this, right? Um, I don't know how many of you guys have ever done genealogy. I got into it a couple years ago, and a couple years turned into a decade and a half, <laughs> actually. But uh, one of my great uncles said, you know, you might want to think before you do this, because you go back far enough in anybody's family tree, and you find some stuff you don't want to find. And he was 100% right. So if you ask me today, like, what are some of the people in your genealogy that you're proud of? Well, you go back far enough, and blah, you know, you find people that our history books and all that kind of stuff, and that's neat. But you, you go back far enough, too, and you'll find people with black marks and pock marks on their record and who are not upstanding citizens. We're not even good moral people. And you won't find me telling you those, those stories because I'm not proud of those people. I'm not proud of that they're in my ancestry, but, but God is proud that these people are in Jesus' ancestry. You know why? Because God loves using broken people his favorite thing. He loves to take broken and fractured people, people who are useless by the world's standards, who, who would have everything against them. He loves to take those people 
and make them useful in his kingdom. And when he does that, it's his favorite thing to highlight them, to throw the spotlight on them. Because you know what that does? It doesn't spotlight them, it spotlights him. Look what he's done in this person. This person had zero possibilities, zero potential. But look what he's done in them. He's brought them from pockmarked and a a negative lifestyle. And he's turned their story into something to be proud of because it pictures his grace and his power. Look what he's done in this person. Look at the capabilities, the possibilities that God can have in you. And so when Jesus meets this woman in Samaria, we're supposed to see these two events back to back. And we're supposed to come to this realization that everyone is welcome. There is no thing that you can do that will separate you so far from God that he won't welcome you back. That's the story of the prodigal son, right? Grace is abundant. It's overflowing. Mercy is there for those who reach out and grab it. Now, if you're not interested in righteousness, if you don't care anything about holiness, it's not there, right? What happened to literally every other person that lived in the city of Jericho outside of Rahab and her family? They were all killed, every single one of them. You know why? Because they weren't interested in righteousness. They didn't care what God had said. If you go back through and you look at Rahab's story, she has heard tell of Israel's God. She's heard the news of Yahweh and what he did to Egypt. And she knows, just like everyone else in the city knows, that Israel's God has brought them to Jericho's walls. They're standing right outside. And if Israel's God, if Yahweh wants Jericho, Rahab's convinced he can have it. He can take it. If, he, if Egypt isn't strong enough to keep him at bay, He uses frogs and flies to destroy Egypt. Jericho doesn't stand a chance. And so she's put two and two together. You go back through and read Joshua chapter 7, Joshua chapter 6 and 5. And you start putting her story together. And she's she's done the math. Everyone else should have, could have done the math along with her. And said, this is what he did to Egypt. Now he's standing outside our gates... If he wants the city to fall, we are not going to be able to stop him. And so we need to line up behind him. This is not a force we're going to be able to beat. This is something we're going to have to join. And so Rahab had the exact same potential, the exact same uh, capabilities as everyone else. She was just more interested in righteousness than everyone around her. May that always be said of the church. May it always be said of us that we are more interested in righteousness than everyone around us. Because that's who God uses. He can and has and will continue to use broken and fractured people. People who have, are the black sheep of the family, right? The ones who have zero potential. The ones who we would would consider useless. Those are the ones that he enjoys using the most. He highlights them. He draws attention to their stories because those people are more interested in righteousness and holiness and lining up with God and trusting Him and obeying Him 
more than anyone else around them. That's what you see with Nicodemus in John 3. That's what you see with the Samaritan woman in John 4. We know later on Nicodemus is going to come more out of his shell. He comes to Jesus by night in John 3. Um, later on at Jesus' death, he's going to be one of the ones that spends a small fortune anointing Jesus' body with oils uh, in an effort to honor him. So he comes out of his shell a little bit more. He's more interested in righteousness than those around him. He's interested in righteousness like God is interested in us being righteous. To that level, at that standard, that's the level of righteousness that these guys are interested in. The Samaritan woman doesn't know it yet, but she's going to be interested in righteousness like that too. When Jesus comes up to her, you can, you should read through John 4 uh, later this week. But just allow me really quickly to, to recap the story for you if you're unfamiliar with it. Jesus is, uh, he's, trying, he's trying to get away from uh, from, from, from Judea, and he's headed up to Galilee. Um, but right in between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north is this region called Samaria. Most Jews would walk 20 miles out of their way, bypassing Samaria and going up to Galilee or going down to Judea. Jesus doesn't do that. It says he needs to go through Samaria. You, you, know, you know why he needs to go through Samaria. He needs to meet this woman. He needs to talk with this city full of people who don't know their right hand from their left hand, right? So he enters into Samaria and he's tired. It's, it's amazing that God is, is tired. He's never been tired before um, Jesus' birth and all of creation on that sixth day. After everything that we, we, we know has been created, he, he wasn't tired. He just quit creating. That's, that's what the word means, right? And he, he wasn't tired, and so he rested. That's not, that's not what happened. He just stopped creating. He was done. But now, in human form, God is tired. And so you know what he does. He sits down beside this well. It's noon. It's hot. He's been walking most of the day by this point, right? So he's hot, he's hungry, and he's tired. His disciples walk into the city of Sychar to get him some food. It's lunchtime. He probably didn't eat breakfast. None of them probably ate breakfast, as most people in the world still don't eat breakfast. Um, they're looking now for probably, probably the only meal they're going to have that day. And so the disciples leave him sitting here, and they go into Sychar to get lunch for him. By the time they come back, he's already had a conversation with the woman at the well. She's left, and she's gone into Sychar to tell those people about living water, right? The disciples went in to get food. She went in to tell them about living water. She has this great interaction with Jesus where he tells her everything she did. Um, she doesn't know who he is at first. She thinks... Probably he's a bit of a weirdo, right? Because his first question to her is, or his first statement is, give me something to drink. And she, she's taken aback, you know. How are you, a Jewish man, going to ask me, a Samaritan woman, for something to drink? Don't you understand all the cultural no-nos, all the cultural boundaries you just crossed? Is this your first day being a Jewish person, <laughs> being a Jewish man? Because you guys don't talk to us. And we don't talk to you. I'm not going to give you a drink, right? 
She didn't like him just as much as every other Jew didn't like her. So eventually he comes down on this point. Had you asked, had you known who was talking to you and had you asked, I would have given you living water. She wants to get into this discussion about religion and where the right spot to worship is. The Jews say it's in the temple in Jerusalem. The, the Samaritans believe it's on Mount Gerizim where, where uh, Abraham was, uh, legend has it, where he, where he was uh, attempted to sacrifice Isaac. That was their, their mountain of worship. And so she wants to get in that conversation with him. And he's like, well, that's, that's not, <laughs> there's coming a day when none of that's going to matter. And, and I'm announcing that day during my lifetime right here. And so she begins to be interested in him. But it's really, I think, the, the, the linchpin for her is when he's able to tell her who she is. All of her history, all, all the black marks against her that everyone else has been talking about probably for years at this point. Jesus, an outsider, a Jewish man who she's never met before, is able to recount her life story to her. And at that point, she gets that he's somebody special. So she's going to leave Jesus' presence, and she's going to go into Sychar, and she's going to try to bring them back to, uh, to meet Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 30. John chapter 4, verse 30. So she goes into the city, and she, well, in verse 29, she says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She, she's kind of thinking it, it's got to be, right? He's got to be the Messiah that the Jewish people and that they, the Samaritans, have been expecting for a while. Verse 30 says, They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Um, but he said to them, I have food to eat. That you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has someone brought him something to eat? In her, Jesus found an opportunity for evangelism in the least likely place. You will find possibilities for evangelism in the least likely places if you're looking for them. This series has really been focused on helping us see people as souls. Because a lot of times we just walk through our life. We go to the bank, we go to the grocery store, we, we go home, we go to work, and we just we meet and we interact with people, but we never really stop to think about them as souls. We never really stop to think about where they're going to spend eternity. And my agenda with this series has been to get us to think a hundred years down the line. Where's the person you're talking to right now going to spend eternity? And can I influence that decision at all? Can, can I ask questions? Can I be an example? Can I get in a Bible study with them somehow and hopefully influence that decision? That, that's, that's been the agenda if you stop and think about this story for, for just a minute, you begin to see how unlikely these circumstances were. Jesus is in enemy territory here. Like we said earlier, the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along. They would have gone 
out of their way to stay away from Samaria. <coughs> so he's in enemy territory. Um, he's hungry, hot, and thirsty. So the cards are kind of stacked against him. How likely are you to reach out to someone if you're hungry, hot, and thirsty? It's harder, isn't it? It's a little bit easier when you're comfortable. But when you're irritated or when you're frustrated or when you're hungry, hangry, right? Those, the potential for conversations that lead to spiritual conversations begin to dwindle a bit. We just need to be on the lookout for those, uh, for, for those kinds of conversations. These people are not a lost cause. Check out what else happens here. Look, uh, look down in uh, John chapter 4. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there about two days. So the Samaritans believed Jesus, at least gave him the time of day. They at least heard him out. For what? Why do they do that? Because of the woman's testimony. A lot of times we think, oh, I don't know enough to study the Bible. Somebody, I don't know enough to, to talk to them. Um, I've, I've done things that, that are not going to be helpful in this conversation. If, if they remember me from high school, college, earlier on in my life, there's going to be inconsistencies here. Let me share some, a biblical truth with you. The messenger doesn't matter all that much. Who is and how they are sharing truth with someone doesn't seem to matter all that much. Let me rephrase it. This woman was able to use her negative reputation to bring people to Jesus. She brought a whole town to him. If a woman who has to come to the well at noon because she doesn't want to interact with anybody else in her city can bring an entire city to Jesus, I think we can do better. What do you think? The messenger doesn't matter all that much. We work towards holiness, right? We work towards righteousness. Well, why, right? We're holy because he's holy. We're righteous because he's righteous. And that lines us up. It allows us to be in relationship with him. We line up behind him. We agree with him. And so, yes, we work towards righteousness. We don't allow sin to run amok in our lives. We lead self-controlled and disciplined lives. I'm not saying that the, that the messenger can just, that we can just live whatever kind of life that we want. I'm saying we don't get to use that as an excuse. Sometimes we hide behind that excuse, don't we? We, we use that as a shield. 
well, I don't know enough. Have we studied? Have we tried? Um, I, I, I don't know how to start these conversations. Have you, have you tried starting one? I guarantee by the time you do the 25th one, it's less awkward than it was the first one. But if you never start the first one, you're never going to get there. That's what I'm talking about when I say the messenger isn't all that important. You find a way to stumble through it and God does all the rest. You, you do your best, right? And God does all the rest. That's what I'm talking about when I say the messenger's not all that important. At least the only reason we might be important is that we can use our reputation to show our friends and our family how much he's changed us. That's how she uses her reputation in John 4. She knew she didn't have a whole lot to work with. She knew that her name and righteousness, her name and holiness, her name and religion were not going to be paired together. The religious elite among the Samaritans were not going to point out this lady as an example of what everyone should be. It would be the exact opposite. They would probably point her out as everything you should not be. But now, she's met a guy who knows things he should not know about her. In fact, she says that he knows everything she's ever done. And he's out there talking about living water. He's some sort of Jewish rabbi who says he can save you from your sins. You see how the messenger is not all that important? If I'm doing my absolute best, if I'm trying to live in line with who he wants me to be, He can do all the rest. I just need to pay attention to opportunities. Because we pass them by every day. John 3 and John 4 would not have been recorded for us had it been you or I in Jesus' shoes. Because Nicodemus comes to me at night and he asks me a question. I was like, oh man, this is cool, right? I miss the opportunity. I get lost in the logistics or, or whatever, but I'm just betting I miss the opportunity because I don't see them as a soul. I'm, I struggle to think a hundred years down the line and to see where his soul's going to spend eternity. If you're in Jesus' shoes, if you're sitting at the, the well, when the woman walks up, what do you do? right? That's what you do, isn't it? You turn your back and, and extricate yourself as much from this awkward conversation as possible. You don't know her. She doesn't know you, right? You just kind of pull back. What does Jesus do? He leans in with everything he's got, right? He strikes up a conversation. The way he strikes up this conversation, if you're just looking at it from a completely missiological point of view, if you're just looking at him as a missionary, doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, right? Give me a drink. What kind of question is that, right? How's she going to react to that? She reacts like everyone else would react to that, and it starts the conversation, right? These conversations have to 
happen. And we've got to get better at getting into them. It's got to be okay to be awkward for 15 or 20 times. Because what happens after that? People begin to meet Jesus. And it's because of you. You do that once or twice or 10 times. You never want to stop. Because you start seeing the potential and the power that God has in these conversations. And you'll look around and find yourself in these situations all the time. There's power in the word. There's not power in us. And so don't use that as a shield to hide behind. Don't use that as an excuse to hide behind. Well, I just don't know enough or... Uh, I have, I have, I'm not a people person or whatever excuse we've used in the past isn't good enough. Doesn't hold water. We get into these conversations because these conversations, like, like what Jesus has here in John 3 and John 4, they move people down the road spiritually. Both these people make progress, right? You're seed planters. I'm a seed planter. We're not the Savior. That's outside uh, of, of that out kicks our coverage, right? We don't have that potential. He does. We're just introducing them to Him. Looking for opportunities to insert some spiritual thought. That's exactly what Jesus does in John 3 and in John 4. He turns this conversation about physical water into living water. And then He jumps into her life and everything that she's ever done. And then he finds himself in the city talking to all these people, right? That's how it works. You just go from initial conversation to next conversation to next conversation on down the line. His power. John 4 is an incredible evangelistic chapter for us, it teaches us that we need to be looking for opportunities, sometimes in the least likely situations. It reminds us that the messenger doesn't matter all that much, that the power's in him, that I need to get out of my comfort zone and just start these conversations, that I need to try my best and let him take up and do the rest. This evening, we haven't talked. Uh, specifically about baptism, but if, if you're struggling and you want to know more about Christ, I would love to sit down with you and study. Uh, maybe you've already made the decision to, to follow Him and you're struggling and you need the encouragement of the congregation here. Uh, if, you have any, if you have any need, uh, just make it known as we stand and sing. I
church family. A couple announcements before we are dismissed. Um, as a reminder for our youth events that are going on uh, this week, July 11th uh, is kayaking, July 12th is video scavenger hunt, and July 15th is water park, and the times and all that are posted um, out in the foyer board where you can sign your child up for those events, and there's also a calendar as well of all the other youth events going on here at Rome. Also, going on here at Rome, uh, July 16th is a deacon's meeting, July 18th is Young at Heart, and July 20th through the 23rd is the Beckley's um, mission trip. Updates on our prayer list. Remember to continue to keep the Carico family in your prayers. Uh, Darren's cousin passed away. Keep the Hayes family in your prayers. Uh, Jean Hayes' sister passed away. And also keep uh, Eloise Hayes' sister in your prayers. Uh, she had a stroke. Keep Terry Baker's mom in your prayers. Uh, she had a stroke as well. Also, uh, keep Linda Bragg Bell in your prayers. She recently had a stroke as well. And keep Nathan Payne in your prayers as well. He's in Thailand. And keep Jimmy Wilgis, Sean Maynard, Jim Haney, and Amber Spitzer in your prayers as they continue with their cancer treatments. Uh, that's all the announcements I have. Um, if you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been been prepared in a conference room. You may leave and do that now. We'll sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Our closing song tonight is number 11. We'll sing this song and then have our closing prayer. There's a beautiful place called heaven. It is Jesus is with
is promised by Christ the Redeemer to his followers faithful and true. Above the bright blue, the beautiful blue, Jesus is waiting for me and for you. Heaven is fair, not far from our sight. Beautiful city of light. We know not when he shall call us, whether soon the glad summons shall be. But we know when we pass o'er the join together in prayer. Dear Father, we approach you with thankfulness and heart for all the blessings that we have that you give us. Oh Lord, we thank you for a way to not only to have a book to read, to study about you and the blessings that we can receive, but that we can approach you, dear Lord, in prayer. We thank you now for this new week ahead of us. Pray, Lord, that you would help us <clears throat> to not only be glad for our lives right now, but to be looking forward, dear Lord, to greater times both here on earth and when we join together with you in your glory. Thank you so much, dear Lord, for these blessings and these promises. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. Yours?